Hi, I'm Bruce Putterman, publisher of the Connecticut Mirror. Governor Ned Lamont recently joined CT Mirror Capital Bureau Chief Mark Pazniokas for a wide-ranging conversation before a live audience at Real Artways in Hartford. As you're about to hear, Mark and the governor mixed it up on the state budget, tax cuts, spending increases, spending cuts, trade-offs, and a potential third term for the governor. Here's their conversation. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Governor, for agreeing to sit down for an hour. There is much to talk about, and some of you have been kind enough to send me suggested questions. Um, They were all quite civil, more or less, Governor. You do the same. I will try. I was looking, though, at some of the advocates who are here, and I'm well aware of all the nonprofits that are next door, and I thought the governor's going to look around and think, Oh my God, this is an intervention. (laughs) So on that note, um, you know, as we sit down tonight, you know, final budget negotiations are certainly about to get underway. So we will, we will deal with that and we'll deal with a few other things. Um, But I really wanted to be a slightly broader conversation about not only your approach to finances and revenue um, and, but issues of growth and equity Uh, In other words, really, what are Ned Lamont's values and how do they shape your strategic vision for the next four years? So let's start with an easy one. You ran for re-election, won big by Connecticut standards. It was certainly a landslide. Um, And you ran as a zealous defender of the so-called fiscal guardrail. So let's just get that out of the way. Is that what you consider to be your mandate? Look, um, guardrails are a means to an end. Uh, we were lurching from fiscal crisis to fiscal crisis for the last 30 years. It was really depressing the hell out of people. Businesses were leaving and young people were thinking about other places to go. And um, the means to the end is that we want to do everything I can to give people uh, a reason they want to stay here. And part of that is knowing that we're getting our fiscal house in order. And fiscal house in order for me means growth. You're not going to have growth. You're not going to have opportunity. You're not going to have fairness. You're not going to uh, give everybody the very best chance in life. If we don't get some economic growth here in this state. We have it right now. You know, this is um, I got 100,000 jobs. We're struggling to fill. You know, I'm an old guy. Most of the time, it's uh, too many people looking for too few jobs. And it's like Hunger Games out there. And that's not the way it is uh, now, not in this state, not in a lot of other parts of the country. So I'm going to use this as an opportunity to give everybody the very best chance in life. That's what I think my mandate is. Well, OK, the, the some of the guardrails were done in 2017. Um, the spending cap goes back to 1991 when Lowell Weicker uh, brought us the income tax. Um, how confident are you that these are fine instruments, because I can assure you, being there in 1991, the first spending cap was, you know, I know this is going to shock you people, it was meant to bring votes to the table. And that was a deal, that was part of the deal. And it really didn't do much. And then what we got in 2017 with the volatility cap, the idea that you have to uh, be careful with more volatile revenue streams, as you well know, like capital gains. But, you know, John Farnfarer, the the Senate finance co-chair then, I I don't think Senator Farnfarer would say this was uh, an instrument that was so finely designed that Connecticut should necessarily have to live with it forever. So have you looked at 
those caps, the volatility cap, the spending cap, the revenue cap, and made a decision that they provide the protection you want on the state's uh, finances, but also have uh, enough flexibility, particularly in a time when the state has a string of historic surpluses. So let me unpack that for one second. I ask long questions. That's tough, yeah. Um, you know, Connecticut, we have our fixed costs are like this. You know, you know what they are. It's salaries, it's pension, it's healthcare costs. And they generally were going up. We've got them going down just a little bit right now. And then Paz mentioned something called the volatility cap. Let me tell you what that is. A lot of our revenues are pretty steady. Things like sales tax and income tax are pretty steady. But some of our revenues are like a relief map of the Rocky Mountains. It's a capital gains tax, like Paz said. So an Apple and um, all the other go-go stocks are way up here. We have a lot of capital gains. And everybody says, yippee, we're really doing well. And we spend right up to that high amount. And then when uh, the price of those go-go stocks goes down, as they do, because it is a bit of a roller coaster, we go, oh, my God, what do we do now? Um, we're in a, another debt crisis. And that sort of was the norm here. So what I, I think the volatility cap, thank you to the legislature. This is before I got here. I just sometimes have to hold their feet to the fire and make sure we follow uh, the rules. You know, says so, so, look. Those extreme amounts of um, capital gains revenue, we're going to go use that to help pay down um, the unfunded pension liabilities. You've been hearing about that, you know, since you've been in the state, and so have I. It was like a black cloud hanging over the state. It was depressing the heck out of everybody. And they said, you know, we're never going to be able to dig our way out of this state employees. You're not going to be able to count on your um, pension that you've earned. I wanted to change that narrative. So that's one of the good things that um, the volatility cap has done. We're in much better shape there. And you know what else that means? Well, we pay down $8 billion of our pension, which is uh, what we will have done by uh, June 30. That's saving the taxpayers of the state of Connecticut something like $700 million a year. So that gives us a lot of um, flexibility to invest in programs. There's Beth Buy, like invest in um, you know, early childhood and daycare and expand that to everybody or provide some much needed tax cuts for the middle class. That's the flexibility it gives us. That's why I think it's so important, Pass. But to put a finer point on it, how confident are you that it is that these are written in a way that, yes, gives uh, you and future governors uh, the, the clout or cover to try to keep Connecticut on a fiscally responsible path, but yet also allow the, the spending of some of this money on things like you know, Beth buys programs uh, to make sure that there's uh, sufficient and affordable daycare. I think it's working. I mean, because we've had an expanding economic pie, that's mean we'd be able to make bigger investments in education than ever before, bigger investments in our universities than ever before, bigger investments in daycare and childcare than ever before. Not enough. I get it. I hear that every day at the Capitol. But the the change of direction compared to where we were five, 10 years ago, you've been doing this uh, since the Ming Dynasty. I mean, and, uh, you know, usually it's, oh, we're going to have to flat fund this. We're going to have to cut, cut, cut. We're going to have to raise this tax a little bit. We're in a very different discussion today. How much more do we increase investments in education and how much more can we cut middle class taxes? So do you see yourself as a corrective 
for the previous decades uh, of spending because you can't be all things to all people. And during your re-election campaign, when Bob Stefanowski was taunting you and 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 calling the uh, surplus uh, and the budget reserves uh, a slush fund, um, you have stuck to your guns on that. So again, if you had to give us your priorities, is that number one of keeping of, of making sure Connecticut um, does not overspend, not overspend, but use surplus funds um, for continuing expenses if this money is not- Like I said, what we're doing on the budget and what we're doing in terms of the guardrails or what we're doing in terms of having five balanced budgets in a row, what we're doing in terms of paying down the pension debt, what I'm doing in terms of those investments is all about growth and opportunity. And if I can keep this state growing, look, we are, no offense, but we are flat as a pancake for 30, 40 years, right? And um, not a lot of people are moving into the state and companies like GE were going in the wrong direction. I'm trying to build on that momentum. And I think our fiscal pillars is part of that growth but it's not coming at the expense of growth and it's not coming at the expense of opportunity. I wanna make sure that there's not one kid in the city of Hartford that doesn't get the skills they need for an amazing job that's waiting for them right now. What about tax equity? There's, there's a push in your own party, um, even if you were going to do it in a revenue neutral way, but why not make the tax structure more progressive than it is? And it is to a degree. So what's your, what's your hesitation to do that? Well, you uh, you brought up the last campaign, which is one of those really happy memories for me. And um, good for the and, and, good for the economy, though. And and um, every campaign going back to Lowell Weicker, the Republicans have said, "I'm going to eliminate the income tax." Right? That's mm -hmm. just a mantra. And uh, eighty percent of the benefits of that uh, tax cut would go to people earning over two hundred thousand dollars a year. We have a tax cut. We've turned that on its head where 80% of the benefits are going to people earning less than $200,000. Uh, people are talking about, I'm going to eliminate the income tax, right? I think you maybe heard that uh, for many years. We're eliminating the income tax for um, all families earning up to about $50,000. And we're doubling down on the earned income tax credits. So even if you don't owe any income tax, I want you getting back to work. And when you get back to work, uh, we'll give you a refund under the earned income tax credit. I'm doing everything I can to give people incentives to get back to work. That's how you um, do this. And secondly, look at all the other things we're doing. We're talking about daycare, talking about the biggest investment in affordable housing we've ever had, putting aside $50 million to allow first-time young families to put down a down payment so they can own their house. These are all different ways that we deal with the incredible income gap and wealth gap in our state and in our country. Are you persuaded or do you fear that a higher uh, top rate would contribute to out-migration? Um, that's been a point of, of dispute um, in policy circles about what drives the rich to go where they go? Um, you and I have had conversations in the past about David Tepper, who's a hedge fund billionaire who left New Jersey and uh, left New Jersey with a budget hole one year of $140 million, I think it was. I think he's come back to New Jersey, though, by the way. But in any event, 
is that a real concern when uh, you are pressed to uh, consider uh, higher taxes on you know millionaires and up? You got to think about that. I mean, I look at um, New York and California and the incredible migration of people leaving their states. And uh, I think about a state like Connecticut, where people were leaving for the last 40 years. And uh, the last four years, we've had 40 or 50,000 families move into the state of Connecticut. And I've said it a million times, and I'll say it a million and first. I don't want more taxes, but I want more taxpayers. That's how I'm able to afford to make the investments and the programs that are going to make a difference in people's lives. So Lowell Weikers remembered for imposing an income tax. and 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 the tax increases. But at the same time, there was one hell of a tax cut for the wealthiest in Connecticut. Connecticut's uh, dividend, I think taxes on dividends were like 13%, capital gains, it was seven, and they were cut down to four and a half percent. We didn't see in-migration of, of rich people. So why, uh, why are people concerned that if it goes the other way, they're gonna get out? Uh, again, I, I look at the experience of other states. I look what happened in this state uh, over 40 years. Look, um, I, I'm a little Weicker guy. I think he uh, confronted a problem head on. He addressed it. He put in place a four and a half percent income tax. As Paz um, you know, says, we also cut the sales tax. We cut um, unearned taxes as well. So, um, But it put us on a much more stable platform. But not that stable because as revenue started going like that, uh, we raised uh, the income tax four times in the last 20 years. We've gone from 4.5% to about 7%. And um, that drip, 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 I think, was beginning to depress uh, the state a little bit. I'm doing everything I can, though, to deal with the income disparity out there, free job training, free daycare for people. Uh, make sure that you have a job guaranteed for you out there and maybe cut your uh, income tax by uh, about 10 percent for everybody earning up to about $100,000 a year. How much of the tax cut that you propose is that geared to changing the perception of Connecticut? You have been certainly sensitive in the past to how the Wall Street editorial page describes Connecticut's finances to the rest of the world, particularly the business world. Um, you have paid attention to rankings that CNBC does. So uh, how much of this is not just for the impacts of the policy here, but for what it does to help sell Connecticut as a place to do business. Yeah, I'm Connecticut's top salesman. I love this state and I want you to love this state. And I want to send that message around the country. Uh, and and frankly, you know, getting your fiscal house in order is just, you know, one pillar of what that is. I love to tell the story about how we have a, um, you know, a park that's within a 10 minute drive of any town you live in in the state of Connecticut. What a difference that is. I mean, you know, out there in the West, they got Yosemite, but it's probably a two hour drive. Other other people don't have easy access. We have the best school systems in the country right here. People from around the country come to Connecticut to come to university, for example. I want to do everything I can to convince people to stay. I'll tell you another tax cut I got. If you want to talk about tax cuts, um, I went out to the companies. I said, look, you hire somebody from a Connecticut college and you pay down their student debt. I'll give you a 25 percent tax credit so that I want that to mean that young people who graduate from a great Connecticut school have an incentive to stay here in Connecticut and businesses have an incentive to hire here in Connecticut. How am I doing? 
<laughs> since you mentioned, looking at me really skeptically. <laughs> since you mentioned colleges, uh, the, <laughs> there seems to be some slight unhappiness with your budget. The president of the Connecticut State University system uh, said he's looking at maybe 650 layoffs um, and other cuts. Uh, your your budget guru, um, Mr. Beckham, uh, pushed back quite sharply and suggested that the Connecticut system of higher education perhaps should look inwardly. Um, so how do you justify, uh, when you just talked about the importance of education, how do you justify uh, the, the funding level that is in your budget? Bill, you're a lot of fun. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm proud of what we've done. We have, uh, let's, let's talk about our community colleges. We've, um, you know, increased our investments in our community college about double per person, per student over the last uh, four or five years, double what we're doing right now. Thanks to a great state senator named Will, Will Haskell, who retired at the age of 23, go figure. Um, our community college program is uh, virtually free. It's debt free. And you know what? We still have our community colleges are almost half empty. You know, they're 40 percent below capacity right now. So I'm 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 making the investments we need, but I don't like to pour money into a leaky bucket. I want to uh, get Terrence Chang. I want the community college system to think broadly about how we reposition community colleges to make them really relevant for young people who want to make them want to go there. I'll tell you one of the ways that we're doing it right now in our, our colleges is look, not everybody wants to go to college for four years or even two years. In fact, maybe 80% of the kids that go to community college, if I get them to start, don't finish. So we're coming up with these um, 22, 26-week programs in everything from IT to nursing to uh, laser welding, and we're guaranteeing you a job. You do that at the community college, and um, now we're trying to make the community college more evening-oriented, so at the same time you're getting that job at EB or wherever it might be, you can continue your education. So I'm really trying to inspire these folks to rethink how they're um, doing their traditional models. But I don't think not enough money is uh, the issue. We've got the biggest investment in community colleges in history. So the Republican budget they put out, uh, they, they said that their concern with higher ed is that the money is is basically is funded evenly and the successes and the failures. So when I asked what you meant by failures, what they meant by failures, they did talk about schools that are in, where the enrollment is down. So what is the level of conversation you're having with the system regarding refocusing? Um, the previous administration certainly Oh, took a run at that um, of consolidating, you know, back offices and whatnot. But but go ahead. What what is going on other than um, being a little bit tight with their budget? So um, Terrence Chang runs the CSU system and um, he's a close friend. And uh, I got him in there because he's a disruptor. You know, Terrence tells me what you know, everybody does, says, um, give me more money now and I'll make changes later. And um, so. 
I listened to that. We've made um, some significant investments. I'm pushing him right now, but he's an amazing guy. And we're going to transform that um, community college system. And as a Paz just said, you know, but there was a lot of pushback. This was not very popular. But uh, now, rather than have 11 independent community colleges, each doing their own thing, it's called the Connecticut State University or something like that. You can go to any one of those community colleges. Those uh, credits are uh, transferable wherever you want to go. And that's the type of transformation that uh, Terrence is just getting started. Sounds like you're giving political cover to Terrence Chang to do some unpopular things within his own shop. Is that part of it? Maybe. Okay. <laughs> Look, he's the, he runs the schools. You know, I give him um, resources. This is the way I... Uh, I'll just pull back for a second. I mean, I'm the first guy that comes out of the private sector, and usually everybody is micromanaging their commissioners and micromanaging uh, the terrorist chains of this world. And that's not the way I, I, I did it. I got the very best people in the world to be our commissioners. I think it's a pretty darn good group. And um, I'm trying to say, all right, here's your budget. Here's your job. Now go out and do it without a lot of micromanaging coming from me. And um, I think it's working pretty well right now. We had a team in place, you know, let's say with the public health emergency, and we came together like no other state in the country did. We worked together as one. I had to make some changes. We had an amazing head of public health. We had an amazing head of uh, economic and community development. You wouldn't believe the discussions during COVID. Oh my God, put on the hazmat suit, open it all up tomorrow, you know, bang. But we got it right. We got it right because um, we have really good people at the table. And uh, sometimes, you know, you get the usual suspects involved in state government, and they all tend to be right from this ecosystem. And I've tried to get a, a wider variety of folks involved up there. So how do you how do you walk that line? You need the support of the base. Uh, Democrats control both chambers of the General Assembly, but yet you also have on occasion suggested that uh, previous uh, appointments have been made for purely political reasons. You you know, you made a great point of bringing in an outsider to the Department of Administrative Services. So it, tell us how you view you are. You have a foot in, in two different worlds. You, you do have to work with the party and work with this culture that you walked into, but yet there are times you do come across as a bit of a fish out of water and you will say things to that effect to the horror of her staff, his staff who's sitting there. <laughs> uh, what was the question? <laughs> I was locked on fish out of water. Um, Hey, look, here's all the politics. How, com how comfortable yeah, in this world in this world? How, you know, when people say I'm not a politician, you know, people in my world, after you've run for statewide office three, four times, you say, bullshit, you are a politician. So how do you rectify or reconcile these two? You gotta get stuff done. Yeah. You know, I'm, uh, look, I come out of the business world. I'm an executive. I, I, I hate being down in Congress. I don't know what I do on myself. Yes, sir, Chuck Schumer. It's just not who I am. Governor is a job and it's an executive job, but I've got a legislature, I've got constituencies, I've got to sell every day. That's why I'm here with you tonight, Paz, try to explain to people uh, what we're doing. But I'll tell you, um, 
I love it. I'll tell you what surprised me. You know, I come from a part of the state, downstate, Fairfield County. They're a little skeptical about Hartford, skeptical about state employees. I've been so impressed with the state employees of the state. I want you to know that. These guys show up every day during the worst of COVID. They are nurses. They're taking care of people with special needs. They really deeply in the environment. That's why they're doing the work they do. And I like to give them a little freedom and flexibility to be able to do that. I got a legislature that took a little learning for me. That was a little different world for me. Um, you know, the legislature, they're, they're, they're advocacy groups. The Capitol building is loaded with advocacy groups. If you're chairman of the education committee, you're an advocate for more spending on education. You know, I get it. But you put together a coalition. And I've got a coalition of um, Democrats and Republicans. And, uh, you know, we just did something today dealing with the um, municipal retirement system. That had been broken for many years. We had Republicans and Democrats, labor and business, actually there with Sean Scanlon making a difference. That's what I'm trying to do with the state every day. So I think you've made the case that that's what you're about. You made that case during the election, but you still have part of the democratic coalition that is a little bit antsy and you know they look at things like uh husky the the state's medicaid program uh i think the last number i saw that i think like a quarter of connecticut gets its health care through uh through husky and there are efforts to expand husky um to uh there was a bill to increase the reimbursements to bring them in line with Medicare um, because it can be hard to, if you're a Medicaid a Husky uh, recipient to get uh, a, a doctor's appointment. So uh, what that was not part of your budget, but what what are your thoughts on the expansion of of Husky? You know, we have a couple of things on the table, uh, opening it more to uh, children who are here undocumented. Uh, we're in the third year of, of trying to expand that. Um, All right, I got it. Um, here's what I would this say. This is what it's like to interview them. You, pr you prime the pump and then you just let them go. <laughs> yeah. um, you didn't have to learn this, but during COVID, realized that um, healthcare is not just a human right for each and every one of you. Also, if that person across the way from you, that homeless person, if they don't have basic health care as well, if they don't have the opportunity to have a mask, if they don't have the opportunity to get vaccinated, it's dangerous for them and it's dangerous for you. I think it's a whole new redefinition of what public health is all about. And I learned a lot during what that I mean, we had to work like heck. The Trump administration wouldn't let us um, provide any um, health care to people who are undocumented to get to your question. Well, if I have somebody who happens to be undocumented for some technical reason and they're not vaccinated and they're not healthy and they're um, potentially infectious, that's dangerous for them, dangerous for their family and dangerous for our greater community. So that's why we do have the biggest expansion of uh, Husky and the biggest expansion of healthcare we can. A lot of it's thanks to Joe Biden, I might add. So everybody says, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of this ourselves, but really anybody under, again, $50,000, we have covered Connecticut. It's free healthcare for each and every one of you. And then people above that up to say $100,000, you can't pay more than four or 5% of, um, you know, your paycheck into a health care, doing everything we can. We got higher percentage of our people with health insurance in the state than just about any in the country. OK, now you're going to say, well, the advocates are saying not enough. I, I get it. That, that's their job. But I think we're making progress every day. Um, 
So on the undocumented, uh, I think, what, three years ago, they opened coverage to if you're eight years old, runner, and then to 12, there was an effort this year to kind of shoot the moon and go for 26 to make it consistent with Obamacare. Um, the uh, Human Services Committee said, no, it's not good. We don't, it's not enough money. We're going to do 18, and appropriations just said 15. Are you comfortable with the spending that will be required to provide Husky healthcare coverage to undocumented up to age 15? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. The Appropriations Committee, which are the folks that we submit a budget in, say, February, then for the next uh, few months, the Appropriations Committee hears from uh, all the different groups. And on a very bipartisan basis, they came forward with a budget that included an expansion of Husky for undocumented. And I really salute the Appropriations Committee. They, They stayed within our fiscal parameters and they made significant investments that I've talked about. There's also a push um, to revise how Husky is used by certain older and uh, people and people with disabilities, that the income limits for that group of Husky recipients is really the tightest. And there's an argument that that's discriminatory. Uh, I haven't heard you weighing in on that. I think I got to get back to you. I don't know as much detail on that as I could. I can tell you that um, folks with special needs, folks with special, those disabilities, what we're trying to do in our schools to make sure that's equalized across the board. What um, I was saying something about our, um, how impressed I am with our um, state employees, you know, during the worst of COVID, when I was telling everybody, stay safe, stay home, you know, don't go out. These folks are showing up every day to take care of those folks with special needs. Every day they showed up at the door. They couldn't uh, zoom that out. So I wear that on my sleeve every day. And thanks to them. You moved your uh, commissioner of social services over to the office of health strategies, and you have her working on really addressing health costs. Um, And one of the things that they're working on is benchmarking where spending goes and trying to push more spending into primary care on the theory that that's the best way to lower, you know, you, you avoid chronic um, problems. So what is the status of that? You have been banging heads with the hospitals, which um, in some ways is is uncharacteristic for you. You do pride yourself on having a collaborative approach. Um, but what's the state of play with your bills on health cost containment? You have one that affects insurers and one that affects hospitals. So uh, a lot there. A, we put a double emphasis upon pi- primary care and sending hospitals uh, to do the right thing. There's nothing more important than prevention. For some of our most distressed communities, um, you know, in this state, you decide when you want to start a family, not some bureaucrat in Tallahassee. But when you're ready to start that family, we're making sure it's the very healthiest um, baby that can be. We're providing nursing care before the baby is born and afterwards. We're providing expansion of doulas for some, uh, you know, first time moms who need a little extra uh, support and assistance, what we got going. Broader, beyond that paths, I got to make a healthcare board affordable and more accessible for everybody. And everybody says, oh my God, Connecticut's such an expensive state. It's all about taxes. 
it's not all about taxes. Uh, we don't have enough housing. I'm making the biggest investment in the housing we've ever had. And I am being pretty tough on um, the hospital costs. And that's the pharmaceutical companies and that's the um, hospitals. And frankly, that's the insurance companies as well. I'll be blunt. I'm tired of the insurance companies saying, don't blame me. I'm just passing along the costs I get from the other guys. No, I want you to take the lead. If we're the insurance capital of America, I want you front and center. I want you to create these preferred networks where people can go where they get much better value for their dollar and they can get much better primary care as well. The hospitals, um, you know, they've I'm pushing back a little bit. They've got some expenses there that are sort of narrowing the competitive base, um, you know, driving up costs. And the pharmaceutical companies, my God, a lot of them are making a fortune. And every time I say, um, look, we're going to get together with all of our neighboring states so we buy pharma together so we can get a better price, you know, uh, that's a start. Then they say, don't blame me, blame the PBMs, the benefit farmer, you know, but we're taking the lead. And Deirdre Gifford, who she was doing innovation down at um, Health and Human Services down in Washington, D.C., and um, she just wasn't really psyched about doing it under President Trump, and uh, that was uh, good for us. So she came up here, um, and now she is leading healthcare uh, for the state of Connecticut. And there are lots of different buckets. There's for state employees, they're for seniors, they're for kids, um, and she's putting it under one bucket and doing a better job of making sure we have broad-based competitive um, uh, accessible health care for each and every one of our citizens. We're going to be the first in the country. Oh, but are you willing to be combative enough to do that? Again, your your nature is to be collaborative. You had a great relationship with the hospitals, by and large, during COVID. Uh, you have certainly appeared at uh, Hartford Healthcare events with uh, Jeffrey Flax, their, their CEO. Um, so I think there's a question as to whether whether you're willing, to, metaphorically speaking, to break heads to uh, to get your hospital bill passed, because there are things they're going to the mats on, you know, the facility costs, the idea they can't um, facility costs. So um, when a hospital buys another practice, um, they can put, say, a 20 percent surcharge on there. Well, that's about four hundred million dollars a year that is in these so-called facilities fees. If these practices stayed independent, which is not such a bad thing, they wouldn't have to pay that facility fees. So you're right, Paz. We've been pretty tough saying we want to get rid of these facility fees and the hospitals push back and the legislature gets nervous and say, all right, maybe we don't do it overnight. Maybe we do it over the next uh, three years or five years. But I am pushing not just the hospitals. I'm also pushing the legislature to stand up and uh, help me. I mean, they want to like cap prices and that's great, but you got to deal with the underlying costs. Same in energy. You got to deal with the underlying costs. I did notice one or two people from Eversource here, so I will ask about energy. Uh, you have a situation at Pura, uh, the regulators, in which um, there's not a clear direction in the sense that you hired um, an outsider to, to shake things up, a disruptor, as you like to say. Um, but she is clearly at odds with the two other members of Pura who are both former legislators. Uh, they're both up for reappointment. You have yet to indicate if you're going to reappoint them. So you, you want to make news tonight? Are you going to reappoint them or are you going to get somebody else? Uh, first, we get into all that politics. Let, let's pull. Can I just pull back for one? Pull second? back however you'd like. Because um, 
Well, I'd say, again, we have very high costs. We have very high electric costs in this uh, state and in this uh, part of the country. And that's in many cases because we're at the end of the supply chain. we got to bring natural gas in by ships. And, um, uh, you know, we don't have oil and gas like they do down in Texas and Wyoming. So we gotta, um, we got to think creatively. So what I've got to do is um, work like heck to see what are going to be our energy sources, carbon-free energy sources in the year 2035, and how do you plan for that? So, you know, what I do is, you know, we've got Dominion, we've got the biggest commitment to offshore power. They um, deregulated, you know, Eversource can't get in the generation game anymore. So you can't blame them for the high price of natural gas. Please don't blame me. Um, blame somebody else. <laughs> but uh, we're trying to find alternatives. And uh, that's what I do every day. So then you got to, okay, I got Pura. Pure is the regulatory body, and they oversee the rates of uh, the electric utilities. And uh, we've got um, a woman who came out of uh, the regulatory commission down in uh, Maryland named Marissa Gillette. And she's trying to do something um, I think that's important. And that's called a uh, performance-based regulation. No more uh, you get an automatic 9% whether you do great work or uh, bad work, whether um, you showed up to um, get the power turned back on ICEA in an hour or in 10 days. Performance-based regulation. But I've also had to explain now you want to get Eversource and um, UI at the table. If you want performance-based regulation, it's got to work in a way that's enforceable and it's going to make a difference. So that's where Pura works together with the utilities. They're not our enemies. Not exactly our bosom buddies. They're frenemies, right? So we got to work together on this. And I think she's a good person to take the lead. And she's got two uh, commissioners there to keep an eye on the ball. So I got a rousing round of applause. You hear that? That's pretty good. <laughs> so are you going to reappoint the two up for reappointment or is that still up in the air? It's still up in the air, but I think so. I mean, uh, just to cut to the chase, um, as Paz says, the head of Pure is a real disruptor, um, shaking things up, really tough on um, spending, tough on how much you can put into the rate base. Can you put the uh, lobbyist fees into the rate base or not? Holding people accountable after ICEA. And uh, we've got two other commissioners who have been there for a while to have some continuity. It's not a bad team. A little conflict is sometimes not all bad. Okay, I won't Sorry, kill that line of questioning. <laughs> I saw you take Marissa Gillette out for a walk after event. I, I'll let that one go. I want to ask what exactly you shared with her about the plans for that. Uh, you mentioned affordable housing. So yes, the state uh, has continued some of the investments that the Malloy administration did um, to provide more affordable housing, but um, you have been very wary of wading into the question of suburban zoning. Um, so there's a bill pending. There's an there's an effort now to maybe go beyond or around 830G, which sets certain goals. But um, I have yet to hear what would be an enforcement mechanism? So you've talked about um, subsidies, about providing funds. What about the, the zoning piece? What are you willing to do? What do you think Connecticut should do regarding suburban zoning? 
All right, so here's the deal. Um, another reason that Connecticut's uh, expensive is we haven't built any housing in the last 30 or 40 years. Um, there are a variety of reasons for that. Paz points out some of it's related to uh, zoning. Uh, I don't want to be down on us, but not a lot of people were necessarily moving here, and there not a lot of housing wanted to be built in general. That's changed a lot. Uh, last year, we built more housing in the state of Connecticut than we have any other time this century. I know the century is still young, but it's a good fact to know. And we have a lot of people moving to this state. And uh, so I want to, when we got the wind to our back, I want to run with it. So as uh, Paz said, you know, we virtually double the amount of money we're investing in um, in housing. Of course, that's um, affordable housing. And uh, we're following on what Dan Malloy did in a very credible way there. We've also added about $200 million a year for workforce housing, $200 million for workforce housing. If I can't, I can educate the people. I can get them a job, but if there's not a place they want to live or can live, we're never going to be able to grow this economy and give people opportunity. And uh, we're working off of that right now. Um, you know, a lot of that housing, I'll be blunt, is going to be in the cities. Our cities have fallen behind a little bit. Their populations are way down than compared to where they were before. There's acres of parking lot where we're building housing. There's empty commercial buildings where we're building housing. And I think you're going to see... Um, you know, well over 10,000 units of housing built uh, long uh, with our inspiration over the course of the next uh, few years. Uh, what a difference that makes. To your other question, how about Darien, right? How about um, some of the suburban towns are a little more uh, reluctant to build housing? Um, there I've said a couple of things. Let's say all along the shoreline there, uh, they want us to speed up rail service and have more rail for shoreline east, it's called. I said, that's great. I'd like to do more rail service as well. There are not many people taking the rail right now in Shoreline East. One reason is you don't allow any housing to be built next to the railroad stations in you know, those six uh, towns. You build housing next to the railroad stations, I'll get you more rail service going on. So it's a little bit of a carrot and stick. Maybe you think that's heavy handed. And finally, um, I've told the other towns, look, I don't want to dictate you how you get more housing, how you get more affordable housing in your town. But I want you to show me how you're going to get more affordable housing in your town. Come up with that plan, speed it up, pre-zone things uh, accordingly, or at least make sure it's uh, easier to get done. And uh, if you don't do that, there's some called 830G. But I fundamentally want the towns to step up and do the right thing and get going. But it sounds like your priority is the production of housing that's affordable, regardless of where it is. Is that is that fair? I think there's a lot of truth to that, but I, I want it next to transit. I want a transit-oriented development. I don't care about plowing under cornfields and turning them into uh, you know single-unit housing. I don't think that's what our future is. Our future is really getting our downtowns back to life. Okay, but but again, to stay with that for one more one more question, it sounds like you're not really willing to expend political capital on pushing some suburbs to allow multifamily housing if it's not going to produce the numbers that you and the business community, the business community has become, you know, a big back of the city. Business yeah. community is a real advocate for us right now. They want this housing built. And uh, no offense to most of us in this room, they want housing built for 20-somethings who are single, who want to live in a downtown and be able to walk to five different restaurants. And, um, and, and I'm with them on that. And that's where everybody wants the housing to go. We can do it a lot more quickly. From a fairness point of view, I think housing should be widely distributed. And I tell, look, I'm from Greenwich. So uh, and now I'm sort of living on the West Hartford, Hartford border. 
they're the canners. And um, I, I tell the folks down there every day, you know what I love about West Hartford? They allowed Blueback Square to be built. You want to know what? West Hartford is about 10 years younger than uh, the town where I'm growing up. And there's a lot of vibrancy and life in that downtown area. And I'd like to see our other towns sort of follow the West Hartford lead, to be blunt about it. And that doesn't mean carving up your zoning. It means build that town. How am I doing, Sherry? She wrote it. She wrote. She wrote it out for me. <laughs> I'm going to go back to values, um, and I think you have certainly made your case about your belief um, in in taking a hard line on spending. Um, but you know, a former member of your administration who now runs United Way, Lisa Tepper Bates, you know, talks about um, the jump in calls uh, for help on basic needs. I think they're up 25%. Um, the calls for help um, for mental health addiction services, they're up by 50%. Um, again, you have, you have choices to make here. So how can you tell the, those communities that it's more important to be fiscally conservative, fiscally disciplined, and that over the long haul, there'll be more money available for these kinds of things. I got to make choices. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have a legislature wants to make choices. I can, um, like I said, we got the biggest investments ever, and that's because we have a growing economy and, and what that means. Some people in the legislature, I'm trying to give... Uh, Average middle class guy, a $50 a month tax cut. A lot of people that say that's too much. Okay, that, that's a choice I've made. I think it sends a signal, so I'm trying to push hard. I think it makes a difference for a lot of people. Other people want me to spend money in other places. Um, but I, I'm proud of what we've got in this budget. If a budget is a reflection of your values, I like what it says about the state of Connecticut. I like what it says about the investments that we're making in kids. That's kids, uh, you know, from the nurse there before that child is born to expansion of daycare, to paid family and medical leave, right through to the best K through 12 education system in the country. You know, I'm, this, everybody says, you know, we spend more per teacher than just about any state in the country. And damn it, I'm proud of that. And I want you to do something else. I want you to thank a teacher when you see them. Every day, I want them to say it's the most important job in the world and we need you there every day. You know, some of them are getting grumpy and boards of better saying you can't teach this and you get rid of that book. Thank the teachers for what they do. It's our greatest asset and it's the best opportunity for these kids. You're really begging me to ask you why you're not then want to accelerate uh, education cost sharing aid into municipalities as the Connecticut. Like I said, for the last 40 years, we've been talking about we're flat funding education. How much are we going to have to cut education? And Paz is saying you're only increasing education spending this year by seven or eight percent. And that's on top of another 700 million that Joe Biden gave us still to be invested in education. So at least I like to debate. How come you're only increasing it by 7%? Why aren't you increasing it faster? I want to make sure, look, Bridgeport doesn't have a superintendent of schools. New Haven doesn't have a super. I mean, I want to make sure this money is invested in a way that makes a big difference for these kids. And uh, I think we're making progress. I think those schools are making progress. So post-COVID, what's, uh, what's the role of the cities given that offices more and more are empty. Um, there's certainly uh, 
some unhappiness in Hartford that you've allowed uh, state employees to stay out, you know, the ones who can make it work, to stay home for, I guess, two days. Well, hold it. Allowed. Uh, they took me to arbitration and I lost. But uh, <laughs> I understand Fair where point. you're going from. I, uh, and I said, please come half time. You, you determine with your manager which is the half you want to come. But we're making progress. People are coming back to work. Um, look, uh, the good news on Hartford is we probably have... Um, Thousands of people have moved into this city over the last, uh, you know, five years. And uh, you've been blessed with a really great mayor, by the way, Luke Brona. And I hope you know that. I think he's made a big difference. Uh, these guys, no, they're not. Yeah, I'd say that, too. Um, I'm, I'm working with the Hartford. I'm working with um, Edna. I'm trying to get travelers, trying to get state employees. I want more people downtown. I like our downtowns when they're lively. I loved our downtown when we had 45,000 people cheering on the Yukon Huskies. I mean, I have that's 10 times more. You know, I asked Paz. I said, Paz, you ever seen so many people in downtown Hartford at one time? He said, yeah, the Wiker anti-tax revolt. But uh, <laughs> he's a real lifter upper. <laughs> so, anyway, what was the question? 40,000. <laughs> Well, if if you're uh, such a big booster of the city, so what what's going to happen at the Excel Center? I mean, that's been uh... all right. So here's here's the deal in the Excel Center, and um, I was a little bit the grump on this one. I got to admit it. Uh, everybody said I want the taxpayers to put up a uh, hundred million dollars and and fix up the Excel Center so we can keep going the way we've always been going. And um, I said the way we've always been going is not the way I want to do it. And frankly, we're state government. We're not that great at running event venues. So I said, I'm willing to come in and I'm willing to do $100 million. It's your money, by the way, um, provided we go in with a strong partner who focuses on events. So I've got one of the leading event companies in the country coming in. They're going to do um, 20. We're going to do 90 or 100 or something like that. And I love it because uh, then that means um, these guys have relationships all over the country. So if um, you know Mick Jagger says, I want to play a Fenway Park and a Madison Square Garden, this event planner can say, you can do that, but only if you also do the Excel Center as well. Having a strong partner there leverages your dollar, really going to make it much more of an opportunity for success. For a split second, his staff was terrified. He was about to do his Mick Jagger impression. <laughs> <laughs> Keith lives in Connecticut. He thinks Connecticut's cool. <laughs> Keith Richards, that is. Is Keith here? No. <laughs> what about the money, though? Are you willing to put up the bonding? Because that's been the, the question. There was a very... Uh, we'll do that. You've got to have a lively Excel center here in Hartford. I, I know what it means when that place is packed. It's not packed all that often. But as I was saying, I love to see the life it brings to our uh, city what it means. I love seeing the crowded streets. I know what it means to the restaurants. Um, uh, we're working like heck, making sure that UConn, the um, world's greatest uh, basketball teams in the world, to uh, come and um, keep playing at, um, at the Excel Center, and they will. All right, let's shift away from money, since I'm making no progress whatsoever on it. <laughs> There was an issue recently on commutations. Um, uh, Connecticut had not been commuting many sentences, you know, be one, two, three a year. And then last year, all of a sudden, there were 71. You removed Carlton Giles as the chair of that board, but you did stand by his reappointment to another term. 
One of the things I'm not clear on is, did you object to the substance of the idea of, of commutations, or was it a question of his failure to adequately communicate the new rules of the road and why we went from you know two or three to 71? I think a little more of the latter. Um, but so a lot of states, the governor pardons people, and they always do that at the end of, you know, in the state. And I think wisely, we don't do that. We have a board of pardons and paroles. I get to appoint a lot of these people. So look, we locked them up and threw away the key back in the uh, 1990s, right? And there are a lot of 20-year-old kids who did something really horrific. I mean, murders that were ghastly. And uh, now it's 30 years later and they're in their 50s. And, um, you know, Mr. Giles said, look, I think we have a <clears throat> we have a new criminal justice theory. And uh, these people have served time. They've been very productive. They're getting job skills there. And I think uh, we can reduce their sentence from 50 years to 40 years. And everybody says, you know, they've taken 10 years off the sentence. That makes a lot of intuitive sense to me, to tell you the truth, and I'm supportive of that. What I did worry about, and there was a lot of um, heartbreak uh, or heart-wrenching in this state, was when we went from whatever it was, 70 commutations, seven one year to 70 the next year. And um, so I did say, look, maybe it's time we take a pause, get the legislature involved, uh, let make sure the board has an opportunity to explain what they're doing, why they're doing it. This is why you have a legislature. They want to weigh in on what I think are some reasonable things we're doing on criminal justice. We're closing down prisons. You go to Cheshire Prison. You know, I went to Cheshire Prison. Um, my security guys hated this. <laughs> yeah, but um, you know, walk in there, and um, first thing the guy says is, uh, "Young man, he, he can't be more than um, nineteen or twenty. Welcome to my uh, gated community." Whoa, that was uh, got my attention. <laughs> And then he said, you know, it's sick, but it's sad, tragic, but I had to be here to get my first opportunity at a college course. So that had a lot of meaning to me. And um, so we're, it's a pause, but we're not changing our direction. I don't believe on criminal justice. So uh, I believe that what you're referring to in Cheshire is what's known as the true unit, right? It's for the younger offenders up to age 25. And that was something that was begun uh, by the previous administration, the idea of recognizing, you know, uh, judgment uh, is not fully developed until then. Uh, and there was a hope that there would be perhaps uh, an entire facility on that model, um, but the funding wasn't there. So are there any hopes to expand that kind of model? Because unlike other um, prisons and, and even other units within Cheshire, I mean, this is a very different place. Um, you know, there were other parts of Cheshire where your security would not have allowed you to wander around the way you can in the true unit, where you can be chatting with somebody who's doing time for murder, but who is a mentor to these 18, 19, 20-year-olds. So again, it all, I guess it does come back to money. Damn it. It all does, doesn't it? Um, how, do you, how do you make... Well, first of all, within our... We're shrinking the number of folks who are incarcerated, uh, taking a second look at sentencing and shrinking. Uh, and we have fewer prisons today. And our prisons are correctional facilities, giving people an opportunity to get back on their feet. You wouldn't believe you go to these places. It's, it's usually, you know, mental health and addiction is afflicting, you know, vast majority of these people. So the idea that um, shackles is the best way to help these people get on their feet is um, a different question. So 
whether I need new facilities to do that pass. No, the idea, the idea of a training in there of, of making going. that standard, the idea of rehabilitation, because in, on the other side of Cheshire, there's still locked down for a good part of the day. Uh, and that's how that, you know, that place is run. But we, we are nearing the end of our hour. And I want to keep my promise to you that we're going to only keep you for an hour. But um, since you're kind enough to come here and sort of answer some of my questions, uh, oh. I'll invite you to. Oh, by the way, uh, there's this assumption, you know, we won't be seeing you on Election Day uh, in a couple of years as a candidate. Is that still the plan? Is that the plan? Mm. There's no plan. Uh, I'll tell you, I'll be blunt. Um, I love the job. I really do. You know, it's. Um, you, you guys have been, you know, great. I think people are feeling a little better about the state than maybe they were five or 10 years ago. I feel like we're making progress. I think um, I'm getting to know the Capitol. They're getting to know me. I, I get it. But um, I think we're working together pretty, pretty well as one. And we got some. Um, I got to make up my mind what I do in the future. You know, I'm 69. Life marches on. I got to tell you. But um, I don't know. Biden's 80, so you can keep going in life, can't you? <laughs> so you're open to a third running for a third term? Yeah. yeah. Not you, him. <laughs> yeah. But we'll see. We got some great people in this state. I got to um, let time, time will sort things out. I just got elected six months ago. Can I get back to work? <laughs> all right. Fast. Any all more right. questions? I don't believe there are. Um, thank you all very much for coming. Uh, and I know we didn't open it uh, to questions and I could see Mr. Flynn raising his hand, but we are at the end of our hour. So I will bid you all good night. Uh, I'll tell you just one thing if I can. Um, <laughs> CT mirror is pretty good and uh, it's worth paying attention to. I, I read it every day and, um, you know, Paz can be a real pain, but, um, he knows his stuff. And of all the reporters out there, I know the point of view of each and every one of them, less so Mark Pazniokas. He's an old-fashioned journalist that way, and I really admire you for that. Thanks, everybody.